0: to the untold stories of real estate investing. Hosted by Wayne Courageous III, a place where active and passive investors come to hear the good, bad, and ugly of real estate investing. Our guests consist of experienced operators and investors who want others to succeed by sharing their stories. If you're looking to syndicate deals or grow your wealth passively in real estate, you've come to the right show. It's now time to sit back, take mental notes, and enjoy our next episode of The Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. All right. Well, uh, we just had our breakout groups and wanted to welcome everybody to our July 2023 meetup. Uh, we are recording this uh, for our podcast, but also for other uh, investors that weren't able to join. Hopefully it gives a lot of value. I'm going to be going behind the scenes of what uh, we do on the underwriting standpoint and try to not do this as an underwriting class because it's uh, we don't have enough time for that, but more so just for the passive investors of hey, what are the levers and stuff that um, sometimes is used to boost a deal and and not? And then, you know, how um, conservative or not conservative some, you know, operators can be. And and that will make more sense as I progress. But the title of this meetup today is Passive Investors Behind the Scenes of Multifamily Underwriting. Uh, We meet on the fourth Monday of every month other than December 7:05 uh, to 7:15, we do our networking breakout groups, and then we go into our guest presentation. I try to bring um, other people to talk about their specialty. Uh, specialty last month we had a um, gentleman with Quest Trust talk about self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks. We've had tax consultants, we've had attorneys, um, and you know other syndicators as well. So, and then we go into Q and A networking for the end. Um, but really, it's a great time to learn about multifamily investing and really commercial estate investing in general. A lot of the stuff that we're gonna talk about here today also you know, fields into other asset classes. It's not all particular towards multifamily, but the stuff that you're learning here today uh, and the questions you ask, hopefully it makes you a better investor um, and at least more sophisticated to invest in opportunities outside the stock market and 401ks and the other uh, investments that are more traditional. Um, So a little bit about myself, a little picture of my family, very outdated, I need to update it. Hunter there uh, with the glasses, uh, he's actually 11. So this photo is very dated. And then my wife, Jennifer, uh, I think we hit 15 years of marriage in October of this year, which is pretty crazy. Uh, And then Emma, uh, she just turned eight. And my Lily, she just turned 10. So they're a big force of obviously why I do what I do. Um, I am doing this full-time. I'm a full-time real estate investor, developer, syndicator, sponsor. Um, Based out of Central Texas, I live in Bryan College Station area. Uh, We focus on multifamily value-add properties, storage. And even within that storage, it's more of a niche with RV, boat, Uh, business storage, and then build-to-rent investments in Texas and Southeast United States. We've uh, partnered on about 33 million um, assets um, across Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. And um, and really over the 16 years, I've worked with 150 Fortune uh, Company. We left uh, this year. I've been a great 16 years with them, but really have a lot of solid foundation through working with them um, over... Like I said, 16 years and now on my own, I'm uh, doing our real estate investments full time. So pretty exciting, um, but I enjoy the active side, um, the stress, the headaches, uh, dealing with all the partners and team members to execute on our investments. And um, so I'm not as a passive investor uh, just because like I said, commercial real estate is, is what I do. It's in my DNA. Other places to learn untold stories real estate investing uh, podcast. I've I've got a really uh, knowledgeable our website that has a lot of knowledgeable material, blogs, podcasts. Uh, there's a uh, resources page as well. Um, we also have launched our passive investor coaching program, uh, passiveinvestorcoaching.com. If you're looking to invest um, more on a quickly on a quicker time frame, definitely look at enrolling and getting part of our passive investor coaching program. Um, these meetups and books, etc., are also great resources as well. Um, but I would say the coaching program accelerates. Um, so hopefully you'll find value in that if, if that's something that you want to uh, participate in. So I'm going to stop share there and then I'm going to share my underwriting screen. All right, And so for those that are on the call, again, if you want to unmute and ask questions as we go along, great. If not, I will try to remember to look up to see if there's any chat. But regardless, at the end, I will also double check everything. So all right. So I want to start off with saying that whenever we find an opportunity, whether it's through an on-market opportunity, which means brokers have blasted it out and there are you know, a lot of people looking at the deal or if we find something off market because of a pre-existing relationship with a seller or we did a call or mail blast, um, et cetera, to try to find these potential sellers who aren't on the market to sell, but maybe open to selling. But two documents we typically want to see um, at a minimum. I mean, there's other documents, but the two big ones is the rent roll and the income statement. And I'll start with the rent roll. So a rent roll is a document that has the resident's name or if it's office or storage, et cetera, maybe a tenant's name. And then it would show, you know, when the move in was, when the did the lease start, and when's the expiration. But it also shows what they're paying on a monthly rent standpoint and what other sundry charges they may be paying, whether it's uh, electricity or maybe they're paying for storage or they're paying for parking or there's an insurance piece to it, but it shows all the charges that are associated with that person or entity. And so that rent roll would have all the tenants or all the residents on it. And then at the bottom, it would show the total number of units leased, notice a total number of units that are leased, but maybe have a notice to vacate. It would show the number of units that are vacant. So. It pretty much gives a operator like myself a snapshot of occupancy. and then as we dig in and compare it to the comps, we're able to see where our average rents are at the property compared to the market and see if there's some value add that way. So that's the rent roll piece. On the income statement or also called as a T12, is the trail, it's the trailing 12 months of financials. So if I'm looking at a property today and that property, uh, you know, it's what July. So July's financials probably aren't closed. So I would be looking at a June, say, um, Oh, uh, July 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. I'd be looking at the last 12 months of financials. And the way the financials would work is it would be like a business statement where you have like your income. So your tenant rents, any miscellaneous, any reimbursements for utilities, et cetera, miscellaneous income, it would give you a net um, total rent um, revenue. And then below that line, you would have your expenses, whether it's utilities, taxes, insurance, repairs and maintenance, payroll, uh, et cetera. and then below that um, you would have your net operating income. Typically, sellers don't give us their debt, you know, because that's below the NOI. And um, and so, in short, what we're looking at with the income statement is seeing what their previous twelve months are, right? So those two documents flows into this underwriting. There are many different underwriting templates and uh, there are groups out there that if you're an active sponsor and you pay into this mentorship program, they'll allow you access to their uh, underwriting. Um, I got a a couple others, um, but I really particularly like this one. So this is um, the one that we use. And so this, what you see on your screen is not tied to a specific deal. Um, it's pretty. I, I kept it pretty vague because this is all being recorded, and um, and will be used to you know hopefully educate others. Or if you want to refer back to it, you can. But at a snapshot of the property, I'm gonna go through what we enter and how we analyze it from a CREI partner standpoint. Um, and hopefully that draws some questions or, you know, some aha moments where, you know, you can ask questions either on this call or in a chat box or when you're actually investing in a deal. So again, the two things we just talked about was the rent rule and the income statement. Those are the two uh, important documents for us to flow in, into here. So let's start off on this tab. And again, this is not an underwriting class. This is more of you seeing as a passive investor, how an active operator underwrites. Again, there's gonna be different templates. So in our case, property name, example deal, property address, Antonio, year built. I'm, these are just hard inputs, right? Occupancy acquisition, number of units, 150. Acquisition date, May 15, 2023, market cap. So that, that sort of starts us, right? Well, usually there's a whisper price Um, in residential, you know, you you go to the MLS or you go to realtor.com or Zillow and the seller tells you, Hey, I want a, I want $500,000 for this house. So you have a pretty good idea of your starting point. And then you can um, offer below or depending on the market higher, you know, to negotiate, to try to get, get the house and commercial real estate is a little different. We, we don't know, where the seller wants to be because it's not on paper. However, we'll talk to other uh, brokers. We'll talk to the broker who is um, looking at the uh, deal on behalf of the, the seller or maybe the broker representing the seller and we'll call and say, hey, what's the whisper price? And so the whisper price is really where the seller's target is to sell. And that's our starting point. So in this case, I'm calling the broker or maybe I'm calling the seller direct and say, you know, what what is the whisper price? What are you trying to get? And in this case, they want 15.2 million. So, okay, 15.2. Well, when I first start, I will start with the 15.2 million because if I can make the numbers work to have an easy win-win where our investors are getting returns and the seller gets what they're wanting, great and in competitive markets it becomes really challenging because other people may be looking to bid and you know what was a whisper price of 15.2 million could end up being a 16 million 16.5 million sell price in a crazy market that market's things are slowing down a little bit so it's not as much as that but let's just say 15.2 million purchase price that was the asking that's where I'm gonna start out you have acquisition fees 2% Uh, A lot of discussion on LinkedIn goes on behind the acquisition fee, like sponsors are making their money up front and the stuff. Um, I would say, you know, typical sponsors aren't, especially on a 6.8 or 6.6 million raise versus this total equity. The 6.6 million raise usually involves multiple sponsors. There's multiple groups. If I feel comfortable raising say $3 million, I can't raise the full 6.6 million as an example. Um, If I have a partner who can raise a million and another can raise a million, then we can collectively as a team come together and buy this property, right? Different sponsors. On top of that, we're not just paying for capital raisers can't do that with SEC. So there's also asset management. There may be a, there's a loan guarantor, like personally, my net worth is not 15.2 million, but to get a loan to close this property you would need somebody with a $15.2 million net worth and you would need someone, that same person to have a liquidity of a say 1.5 million, 10% 10 of the loan as an example. So this acquisition fee gets split between multiple people. Uh, And so as that sponsor may own or manage more of the deal, then that may, uh, this number may come closer to them. So usually 2%, if it's a smaller deal, it's very normal to have three or 4%. Ultimately, it allows the syndicator, one, it compensates for all the time it took to find this deal, right? Because they go through many, many underwritings and negotiations and talks, et cetera, that don't actually pan out. So it's compensating all that time, but it's also compensating if they have staff or uh, administrative expenses, marketing, et cetera. So that's low on the acquisition fees. On the loan fees, Typically one percent of the loan fee could go to a mortgage broker who goes and sources out to multiple lenders and finds the best lending. So that's usually one percent. Um, in this case, because this was going to be uh, as an example of a a um, a bridge loan as an example, you'll see here it's 4.25 percent. I will tell you on one of our deals last year, it was 101 units in Houston we spend about $360,000 on a rate cap. And that was an extremely important investment for us because we all sleep very well at night, knowing that no matter what's going on in the Fed and what's going on elsewhere, our rate may have a variable component to it, but because we spent an insurance policy to have a rate cap, we it won't go higher than that, right? So in this instance, uh, the loan fees includes a rate cap, if you are investing in a deal that's fixed rate, that rate cap wouldn't be there. So it would likely just be one percent, right? But if you are buying a rate cap on a bridge loan or a loan that has a variable rate, you may see a, you know, you may have a three hundred thousand plus uh, charge to the deal to have that rate cap if that makes sense. And again, put questions in the chat box. If there's any questions, I'm happy to look at it. And then, or if there's questions, just interrupt me. Uh, And then you got closing costs. A lot of that's legal fees, Uh, working capital. uh, That's, you know, when we, there's money that's going to be set aside likely with the lender. And so working capital allows us to do work faster. And then we submit that to the lender for reimbursement. If it's a bridge loan, in this case, This example would be more of a bridge loan. So we have one month working capital allows us to expedite work. And then we have a CapEx budget for this example, 816,000 additional reserves is 450,000. It is a lot of money to sit in a bank, but it allows for safety net, right? And just anything that happens in the market. So depending on the deal size, that number will change, right? I'm sometimes it's 150,000. Sometimes it's 450. It just depends on all that goes on. So in this case, the total equity is 6.6 6 million. And then we're going to put in our lender. Uh, so we've say, we've sent this out to our lender and we, we, they've underwrite have underwritten it and they're saying, Hey, we can give you a 68% loan to loan to cost. Um, and you know, 10-year term, you know, three years of uh, interest only, 30 years amortization, interest rate, crazy rate, right? 8.25. Um, you know, this this is coming this the sponsors getting their numbers from a lender. So they will put that here. Exit timing, you know, year seven, exit caps 5.75 in this example. Typically, you would see 10 or 15 basis points from the existing cap rate per year. So if your cap rate in, t- in this market say is 5%, then 10 to 15%, I'm just gonna say 10% each year or 10 basis points, excuse me, over a seven year period, you may be exiting at 5.7. This is really important and, I'll, and I'm gonna show why, because if you see this IRR, terminal rate return, right now it's at, set at 11%. If I reduce, so if I reduce the cap rate I increase the value so if i'm not as conservative and say i do five and a half you know our ir went to 12.23 i've been seeing people if the market cap rates at five percent and i do a less than current cap rate meaning i'm assuming that interest rates are going to be going down and if interest rates go down. By theory, cap rates should be going down as well. Well, notice that internal rate of return before it was 11. percent By me adjusting this one number on the exit cap rate, which is an unknown number, nobody really knows or has a, a crystal ball of what that's going to be. Um, if I adjusted that and 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 went on a presentation and said, "Hey, you know, I'm predicting the rates to go down." Um, that's the that is the consensus of most people. Rates are going to go down, and because rates are going to go down, in theory, cap rates go down. Well, it's a theory, and depending on people's risk tolerance, um, you know, that may be fine. But other people may be like, "Hey, I don't know what's going to happen in eighteen months, two years, much less five years, right?" So, this exit cap rate, when you are analyzing a deal. Always look at the cap rate and see if it makes sense. If if they had a starting at 5% cap rate and they're doing 10, 15, 20 basis points each year and adding on to it as our initial underwriting had, you know, that's pretty reasonable. I mean, it, it, nobody knows, but it allows us to say, Hey, um, we're going to stay on a more conservative stance and say, Hey, we don't know what this is going to bring, but we, we, want to project that we have a higher cap rate than going in. So adds a little concern conservative conservative uh, basis. So gross sales price, cost of sale, this is like broker fee for when we sell it, two percent. Um, so anyway, year seven. So this is pretty much all pretty basic on entering the data that we have. And again, this is a very this is initial information. When we go into supplemental financing, You know, sometimes, um, a lot of cases, it's a fixed rate, um, or, you know, it's a term loan. So it's a five-year fix. So there's nothing refinancing involved. If we were refinancing, as this example shows we're doing, then as an operator sponsor underwriting, I would say refinancing, yes, I'm planning on to refinance year three, my interest rate anticipating is 5.4. And typically fixed rate on multifamily non-recourse, this would be about average in today's market. If it's bridge loan, more risky, you know, it could be definitely higher. Um, interest only, two years, thirty-year amortization. You know, uh, we mentioned ten percent increase expansion over cap, so the refinance here is five point three. All this to say is that this way how this underwriting shows is year three we're going to refinance, and when we do we're going to pull out about 1.8 million in cash to distribute to investors, okay? That's how this example works. Um, I could easily say, no, like we're not refinancing. We've got a fixed rate deal. And if I said no, then it is what, it, you know, that's the deal. The IR on now is 9%. So as a sponsor, I'm having to look at what is best for our investors? How do I look at a deal and make it work? And I'm always trying to convince myself how to make it work um so refinance toggle so in this case by giving our investors back capital early on in the deal like say year three and they still cash flow years four five six seven eight however many years you know this boosts up some returns a little bit uh another thing too when we're underwriting is we look at what the best structure is typically for us as CREI partners we're at seventy-five twenty-five LPGP so our limited partners would receive, 25% our general partnership team would receive. We're typically doing 7% preferred returns. Um, And for us, we like to see a minimum of 15% IR. So this 11.15 does not meet my excitement level, right? Even though the equity multiple is 1.9 and the average returns are 12.86, I I play a heavy basin. The internal rate of return. All that said, I'm still trying to convince myself to make the deal work. So I'm looking at how do we how do we do that? You know, if if I offered an asset class or a, a preferred return, say maybe um, 25% of the deal gets 10% annually, but they don't have any upside. When you see that, it allows more juice to be made for your Class B or, or C investors, right? So, a lot of times we have investors who don't want the upside. They want, they like that predictable ten percent coupon, or eight percent, whatever that coupon is, whatever that amount is annually. They like that, um, and so they're at ten percent. So, if you if the deal was at 15 percent IR, and they collect ten percent, then that leaves another five, seven percent for the other Class B members. So, it benefits other members of the deal. If, that, if they allow that. Now notice by me making that adjustment, 25%, I just boosted our IR at 11.75. If I did 30%, you know, it boosts up a little bit more. So um, I'm gonna go back to zero here. But again, as a deal sponsor, I'm looking at ways like how do we make, what's the best terms for our investors? How do we make it work? And how do we get to the sell price that a seller would be willing to, to sell at, So when I look at all these things um, here, then I'm gonna go over to what we're projecting. So I mentioned early on in the call that the rent roll is our document to see what's the existing rents at the property and where can rents go based on doing a market survey. So these this 803 is simply All the 26 units that were one bedrooms, one bedroom, one bath, the average rent for all 26 units that were leased, I don't include the vacant units, but the ones that are leased, their current rents are 803. Maybe some units were at 950, maybe some were at 700, but all on average, 803 is the current rent. I do that for every single unit plan. All right. That gives us a pretty good base of where our current rents are. What what is our average rents? So all in all, our average rents is 966. But because I know the market well, and I've done my comp surveys, I'm able then to go in and say, okay, well, I know where our current rent is because of the rent roll the seller provided. Now it's time to go to the market rents of what the market, the sub-market shows rents to be. And so in this case, 825, 900, 923. So we're not too far off from market rents, but we are trailing right and so there's a value add when you hear that word there's already value add in the way of like where current rents are and where market rents are but sometimes current rents are where they are because the property's crap like there's a lot of deferred maintenance there's a lot of issues there's poor management a lot of crime maybe they're accepting you know second third fourth chance people So us as a sponsor, when we do our due diligence, we're looking at like, why is current rents maybe lower than market, right? Because I can have pro forma market rents higher, which is great because on paper, like we can grow the rents to market, but if there's any underlying issues. And so we do that through checking Google. And this is something that everybody on this call can do. And those listening in, check the Google ratings. For me as a buyer, I'm okay with comments that are really bad, one star, two star. In fact, the uglier the reviews, the more exciting I get, because those are things I can change, right? I can change the name of the property. I can change the uh, perception of that property, more of that value add. But from a tenant looking in, they may not want to pay these higher rents. They're willing to pay 853 or 803 um, because that's all they can afford uh, or that's where they want to be and they can't pay the higher rent or, you know, prefer not to be at another property. So anyway, you just got to figure out as a sponsor why the market rents are where they are, why the current rents. When you're listening to a deal uh, perform a presentation, you're going to want to ask yourselves like, where are the current rents? Where are the market rents? And does the story make sense of how the sponsor is going to get there, okay? And part of that story is, is like, Hey, we want to renovate units. We want to renovate the exterior and we want to renovate the interior. It's very common on older properties. That's where the value add comes in. You're repositioning, uh, renovating, you know, pushing uh, rents where possible and really trying to turn the community around uh, and hopefully a, a better community than it was before. So, here, you know, you have your projections. So I, in this case, you know, I'm projecting out year one, I think I'm gonna do 36 units. This is what I think we can increase it to, $85 for renovated, 100. So it takes the market rent and it adds additional rent for renovated units. So this would be more of a classic, this would be more um, the upside on renovating units, right? So again, it all goes back to, because I'm trying to find what my net, I don't look over here. I don't look at the total deal returns. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is what is my investors going to get? So I'm trying to boost. If I came in here and I was being more aggressive, say 125, you know, we, we would definitely see an increase in IR. So if I went over here, Right. So the more rent, you now my IR looks a little better, but you know, I want to be conservative. You know, we're already increasing rents a certain amount from current to Performa. Then we're renovating and we're assuming these increases. These increases also, you'll want to, when you're talking to the sponsor, listening to their presentation, you want to make sure the property management company is also buying into projections too, right? The property management company, boots on the ground, they're the ones that are going to be implementing and, and driving this business plan. So we got our units there and then we got our cap renovation. So $4,500 per unit um, for a total of $504,000. So in this case, $4,500 is not a lot, but, and that's just an example, you know, this could actually be closer to 8,500 a unit. You know, if you think about appliances and, um, you know, flooring, I did a due diligence last week on a property that. All all units were, had apply, you know black appliances, the uh, cabinets looked great. I mean, it was really a pretty solid asset. So like for me, I was like, hey, let's just do forty five hundred. It it's paint and maybe some new flooring, right? So just depending on the due diligence that we're looking at, this will change this number. But it, this has to be a pretty good number because you can go into renovations and not have enough money to finish the job, which impacts. Your rents, which impacts your deal, right? So as passive investors, it's all about the story. The story should be, you know, they we are purchasing it for this value. This is our business plan, and this is what we're looking to exit. And if all those things, you know, make sense, then great. Obviously, there's more to it than that. But from an underwriting standpoint, we're projecting our interior renovations. And then our exterior renovations. So we've, this is where that eight uh, or that 777,000 is where this should flow. R57. Yeah, because we have contingency. So this number that we were talking about before, this CapEx renovation um, flows right there. All right. So I'm going to pause. We've got a couple questions I'm going to look at. Um, a lot on the spreadsheet and as passive investors, you don't need to know every. you know, you don't have to dig in on everything, but key takeaways before I take a little break and ask questions is cap rate. What's, what is the entry cap rate? What's exit cap rate? Because as I had shown y'all before, that can really drive an IR difference, right? So if we want to stay conservative there. I'll take that back. And then we want to see what the business plan is and is it achievable? And you can see if it's achievable by looking at their comps and just listening to their story. If something seems off, you know, follow your, follow your gut and, you know, easily just pass. I mean, you don't have to, none of this should be more complicated than does the business plan make sense. All right. So I'm going to pause there. And answer question. So is interest only period a benefit to the buyer or something that bank asks for? Oh, it's a great question. It's a definite uh it's a definite benefit to the buyer. And the reason is is because when we first buy a property, say it's a you know a value add property, um, which term sometimes can be used loosely. I view value add as truly going in a distressed property or property that needs work. Renovating and pushing value, right? And if I have two years of interest-only payments, then my debt service is going to be less for those two years, which allows me breathing room to renovate the property. So, um, if I can get a three-year interest-only, then that money is I'm only paying interest, and then the money that um, that means more money line to to the asset. And once the renovations are done, that means more distributions to our investors. So we like the interest only, absolutely. Um, what we typically see in, in today's market is maybe one, two years of IO, and then you'll start seeing principal and interest having to be paid, which is also a benefit because as principal's written down, because you know you're paying that debt service, when you go to sell, there's you have more equity at sale too, right? Just like your house on you know when you when you have a house you're paying P&I every month and you know you're forcing the the debt service to go down and when you sell if you ever sell you'll have more equity um so that's a great question and typically again for bridge loans and even Fannie Freddie you typically see a two-year two-year loan or two-year interest only it's on you know negotiable and what's going on in the marketplace um we've got an RV boat storage facility we'll have you know, 24 months of interest only. It allows us to get the property developed and complete and only have to worry about the interest only instead of interest and in, in principal. So, great question um, there. Hopefully, answered it. Uh, how conservative are you with cost to renovate units and time to renovate given fluctuations in construction pricing and contractor demand? So, that's uh, a really great question. And um, Typically, what we would see is uh, two weeks for a unit turnaround. Um, we have uh, we don't do it in house for one. Um, I see sometimes uh, companies or people they'll use their maintenance person to renovate the unit. I'm good with the maintenance person doing a make ready, you know, and it's just a clean, maybe a quick paint or whatever. But if you're going in and taking out flooring and you're Doing, you know, a a renovation that takes that maintenance person out of maintaining your asset. And uh, you know, something's not going to get done, whether the units won't get renovated timely or the maintenance of the property suffers, right? So we have a a contracting company that comes in, we discuss what the scope is, whether it's the flooring or the appliances, etc. And you know, we come up with our scope and we outsource like it's cheaper to go direct to a carpet or a flooring vendor. So we don't go to a general contractor to then have them price and scope with the flooring. Cause they just, you know, naturally mark up, That's nothing wrong with that. It's just what they do. So we go direct to say flooring painters and then use the general contractor for uh, trash out, clean everything out, doing a lot of the, the labor stuff work. Um, great question on pricing. Pricing has gotten more, and so when I, if you do see a number like $4,500, this should be a huge red flag. Like why that sounds really cheap. Appliances alone are like $2,600, right? And then you think about flooring and stuff, but like the deal that we um, are working due diligence on now, most of the units already done. So for me, it's just really paint, maybe doing the flooring in some of the units um, and then Uh, cleaning up. So $4,500 is more reasonable, but that's where, you know, that type of question you just asked is the type of question you should be able to ask your sponsor or the general, um, the partner who's presenting the deal. And, you know, they should tell you the story or like, yeah, they've got pricing or they're using, you know, ABC company, et cetera. So great question. All right. Um, Another question is, do you walk through the property to estimate rental costs before you sign the contract or you sign the contract and then run the numbers? Uh, Really, really great question. It all depends on what's going on in the market. So like right now, we're working through a purchase sale agreement, um, but I was able to get early due diligence. So the letter of intent was signed. We were able to negotiate early access before the purchase and sale agreement. Um, so in today's environment, that's a lot more acceptable. In some environments, it's hard money day one and usually 1% of the loan price. So this is where when people get a little concerned about these acquisition fees, I say we the risk, say 1% of $15 million. So that's 150,000 down, hard money day one. So if the deal doesn't close for whatever reason, that sponsor has lost 150,000 or that sponsorship team has lost 150,000 so when you ask are we able to get early access to price that is the ideal situation for the sponsor we really want to have early access because we want to be able to say yes or no before our money is hard on the line that's not passive investor money on the line that's active sponsors on the line it's part of doing business part of our world but um but yes we we ideally like to have the ability to walk each unit um, and and to look at it. I personally walk every unit. Last Thursday, I walked all units at this property with the the management team. Um, and you know, we've got our list, and we know what pro- what unit needs what, um, and that's important. Um, sometimes you have to sign the contract to give access. It's just it depends on the market and what's going on. It has softened for sure, so um, you you have more leeway to get those early inspections in before money becomes hard or um and and to get a good rental cost. If not, hey, when you do this enough and you know the submarket or you have relationships in the submarket, there's a pretty good idea of how much a unit's going to cost. And again, when we're underwriting, it's all conservative. Notice I haven't, you know, I've still kept the purchase price at 15.2 million. Once all these levers are adjusted, like, Hey, I feel comfortable. I, I don't want to move more on my rents, okay? And you know what? My capital budget, I feel really solid about my capital budget. I like where it is, For example, is. I'm just throwing that out as, as if everything was good there. And really, the only thing I can adjust here is purchase price. And as I mentioned earlier, if my IR is 15% and I've done everything I can from an investor uh, waterfall effect to feeling comfortable on my exit cap rate and feeling comfortable to my rents and my capital budget. And if I'm going to refinance or not, if all those levers, at the end of the day, it's all about the purchase price. They want too much money. So maybe I'm going to go at 1400, 14.2 million. Well, in doing that, I'm at 13.65. I'm like, okay, well, we're getting a little closer. You know, it's a million dollars off. Um, I doubt they will accept a million dollars off. Who knows? We still talk to the broker, talk to the seller, but this is the stuff that goes back and forth. This is why deals don't work most of the time, right? Because where the seller wants and where the actual value of the property and what we can do to make it work doesn't, um, doesn't line up. All right. So these are the assumptions. This is just one tab of all these other tabs, right? Check our time. Um, I need to hurry up a little bit Um, but hopefully it's good information for everybody but let's talk about the annual performa tab again every underwriting is going to be a little different for every um, active sponsor but another thing to look for is their projections and for those that are on the call I'm going to go longer I'm going to make sure I provide as much value even if I go to you know 30 more minutes you'll get the recording if you have to jump you know please jump but I don't want to rush I really want to you know, just add as much value as I can. So on this tab, annual performa. The annual rent growth is important. In prior years, and I did this too. It's it's not, it was what the market was doing, right? I mean, it was eight percent, you know, seven percent, five percent. Then we, you know, get that down to three percent. Notice that by Pushing rent growth, which was market just a couple years ago to eight percent, seven percent, as an example, you know, have that story of like, hey, we're pushing rents, then we're projecting, you know, getting it back to a stable three percent. Notice our IR is like now eighteen percent. You know, our equity multiple is two point one. This is a fantastic deal. Um, am I still my assumption is still up fifteen point two yet? I hit the purchase price, and my uh, my IR equity multiple. That's all pretty sexy, like all good. In today's market, you know, I may do 2%, 3%, 3%. It's not as exciting, right? But it's the market and being conservative. So jumping, reducing those uh, annual increases impacts IR, impacts the numbers. So when you are looking at deal and you're analyzing, again, it goes back to the story, doesn't make sense. Are they projecting conservative rent growths? if they are projecting, say, two percent year one, three percent, future years. I mean, that's pretty pretty standard. I mean, if your rent is eight hundred times one point oh three, I mean, it went up twenty four dollars a month. As an investor, anybody who's looking outside in, that's reasonable, right? Rental increases are going to happen. I, you know, in a in a good market. Uh, I haven't had any properties on my stack have reduced rents. You know, say someone was paying 900. I didn't have to pay charge 850 because of today's market. That makes sense. So rents are going up. They're just not going up that 810. I mean, some were 15% increases year over year. It was a fantastic market a couple of years ago. So A lot of people made a lot of money, um, which is great. But let's, you know, always, you know, in this market, let's continue to stay conservative, 2%, 3%. So ask about that, You know, what's the rent growth? What is the other income growth? 0% in this underwriting 2%, 2% in operating expense growth. Maybe this is too low. Maybe you don't like 2%, inflation, et cetera. Maybe this really should be more closer to 3% or 4%, and then it goes down. The end of the day, you as a passive investor are not gonna change the projections, okay? Just like you won't change the private placement memorandum. You read the document, if the document you don't like, it is sort of what it is. Like just don't invest in the deal if you don't like the document, right? Same thing with here. You're just looking at it as a sophisticated investor and you're saying, hey, I noticed they did 2% annual rent growths. growths I think we need to, you know, in today's market probably be a little bit more conservative. So annual rent growth, operating expense growth, all key for the overall valuations. Then you get into more of the underwriting. This is a lot of technical. Again, this is not an underwriting class. But if I go back over here to my rents and I say my market rents are $900 and my renovations, there's a loss to lease. Not everybody's going to go from $800 to $850 or $875, right? So there's a loss to lease. So if you see $1.9 million as gross potential rent, that's taken the rents that are... The you know what's the most possible rents at that property given where the market is say it's one point nine gross potential rent say ten percent of the the units over the year can't be converted to the higher rents so I reduce out one hundred eighty six thousand so the gross scheduled here is one point seven one five again a lot of this may be too much in the details but as a operator. I also have to see, does it make sense? My T12, remember the T12 was the income statement. And if there's gross scheduled total rents on the T12 or 1.6 million, remember the T12 was the trailing 12 months. And my year one projections at 1.715, you know, I'm not totally crazy and I'm not totally concerned about it. I mean because I am going to be renovating the property. We're going to be churning uh, units to get, you know, these higher rents, et cetera. So I may be okay with that. Vacancy loss. I mean, they're hovering about 11.14%. You know, we're at 10%. Maybe that's not as conservative. Maybe I should do 12%. You know, this is up to the underwriter. The underwriter is looking at the market and the property and putting in enough buffers in case, you know, maybe one expense is higher and there was buffer in this other area. And so it all evens out. So all that said, total net rental income on the T12 on the seller's prior 12 months is 1.3 million. I'm projecting it at 1.4 million. As a passive investor, y'all should get a snapshot of what all the income and annual performance is. I mean, and so you can look at it and be like, okay, this is where they were. This is where they're going to be. Am I comfortable with their projections? Other rubs, uh, rubs is reimbursed utility building billings. So, you know, if if the utility is a hundred thousand, then you should hopefully see 90,000 or 90% of the billings um, reimbursed by the residents. I mean, that would be the ideal goal. Other income could be parking, miscellaneous. Um, you know, so that those are questions y'all could ask. Is like, you know, where where is this other income going? Where where are the what is the other income today, which was seventy one thousand? Where is it looking at this coming year, seventy thousand? But notice year two, I have one hundred one thousand. So I usually I did a note here. So the additional thirty thousand. So we're at seventy thousand. Year one, we're now at 101. The additional 30,000 of revenue from parking carports were part of the capital plan. So if I'm a passive investor and I reach out to my general partner of, of a deal that's being presented, you know, I may ask, why is year two 30,000 higher on other income versus year one? Well, Villa should have an answer. And well, in this case, 30,000 revenue from carports. Now, if I go back to my assumptions, I want to make sure my carports were budgeted because they were not at the property at the time. So there's a hundred thousand in CapEx. So that, that checks out to me as a passive investor. I'm happy with that. And actually I'm pretty excited about it because the, the sponsor found an opportunity to grow value um, and spend capital dollars to grow value, not just um, paint and you know, repositioning. So there's a lot of great force revenues that way. All right, so let's go into property management. So I mentioned the income statement. I've said that a couple times on this tab because this is where this tab is important. The other one, this assumptions tab was rent roll. A lot of rent roll. This is all income statement. So I see what the projections were over the last 12 months that the existing buyer has, or excuse me, existing uh, seller has. And now I'm looking at my projections year one on. I don't underwrite based on what the seller was doing, because the seller isn't gonna manage the asset the way I would manage the asset. Sometimes uh, I will manage it less efficient because I don't have as many units as that seller. Maybe that seller had 200 units around this property and they were able to share payroll costs or they had insurance uh, costs that were less because they had a bigger portfolio. So this is more of a starting point but we always want to budget based on how we think we're going to manage it, right? And so in this case, these are the numbers that you know we put in. And net cash flow year one is negative 40, 43,000. So that um, you know, starting year one is negative cash flow. Now negative cash flow for the first year, first year and a couple months, that's normal on a deep value add. Because you have a lot of turnover and there's a lot of expense and renovating and you are pushing rents. So I'm not as concerned year one if it's a deep value add that we're negative cash flow. But what I do want to see from a passive investor side that I think y'all should ask is all right, we show negative 43,000. Where are our reserves that should cover this 43,000? All right. And I'm going to go back to, this tab here, that is where additional reserves come in. Now that's year one, 40,000. The additional reserves we have underwritten is four hundred fifty thousand. So we're more than covering year one losses. Year two, I typically want to see our income. You know, I you know that I don't want to see that we have less income year two than year one. So I don't, you know, again, this is a projection. Um and I think a lot of this underwriting I adjusted the rent growth. Um, so let me see. Anyway. So now if I did that, adjusting, you know, the net cash flow. But I've got to again trust the number feel comfortable with the numbers. US passive investors analyzing a performance have to be comfortable with it as well. But just notice what I just did there. With annual rent growth, how I turned a negative net cash flow into a positive cash flow by making those adjustments. So, if you feel, or the investor, or the sponsorship team, and and those that are investing in the deal feel like, yeah, we can get our rent growth at five percent, four percent year two, three percent, then you know, then we're, we're we should be fine. But in you know, some people they don't want to do any rent growth in year one, and then they may go year two. And so we want to make sure we have enough reserves. So, all right. So there goes that. Uh, Other things to look at or ask about is the DSCR. Usually um, this is, I don't know if it's not as talked about as much, but it is something that we as the active sponsors pay attention closely to it's what allows us to sleep at night. um, Because if you are not able to make your debt service, then things get really stressful, right? That's where capital calls and other things happen. So in this case, year one 0.81 at one DSCR, I'm making enough to just pay my debt service. So if I'm at 0.81, I'm not even able to make my debt service, which is why this is a negative 8473, okay? Again, if it's a bridge loan, year one is part of the strategy business plan. We're renovating, repositioning. There's going to be a loss in year one. We have enough reserves, totally fine. But we want to see this DSCR get to 1.25 or higher by at least year three. And why year three? So year three, 1.25 debt service ratio is important because I've told everybody on this call that I'm planning to refinance year three. To refinance into a Fannie Freddie agency debt, which allows us to get a a nice interest rate and good terms, et cetera, I've got to be at a 1.25. That's the minimum for these agency debt. So I'm at 1.2. So that concerns me as an active sponsor, right? I'm like, okay, well, based on my projections and where I'm going to be, I'm not going to be able to hit the business plan 1.25 in year three. Maybe I get lucky and strike it off the park. But as a sponsor who, you know, likes to only do two or three deals a year, I'm only doing those amount of deals a year because most deals don't work. And so part of that is like, hey, I've got a lot of negative cash flow and I'm not even hitting my 1.25 year three. So I'm gonna pause and see if there's any questions. Um here. Okay. No questions in the box. So uh debt yield, you know, typically lenders want to see at least a seven and a half percent, debt constant break-even. This is something I like to look at as well. Um The nice thing compared to like a single family, when we own those personally, you know, when we had somebody lived in that house, it was fantastic. Uh, You know, we had rental income, they took care of the property, et cetera. Once they left though, it was vacant and no cash producing until we leased it up. Right. Well, in multifamily, why I prefer it is I could have, just as this example, 76% of my units occupied. So it was at 30 or uh, 23% not occupied and still be cash flowing to meet our debt service. So um, anyway, so that's this tab, uh, multi-class waterfall. Again, it goes back to, you know, sometimes there's a 30, 40 or 30, uh, 70 split, 25, 75. There's different splits and different uh, ways to, Overcome waterfalls, maybe after 15% IR, LP GP split 50/50 um, for this type of conversation. Ultimately, when you look at a deal, you'll determine like, hey, do these rate, do these returns satisfy what I'm looking for? Um, and if so, it's it's likely to they work through the waterfall to make sure it's beneficial for you and the GP. Uh, sensitivity analysis. This is pretty crucial as well. Uh, usually, during a investor presentation, there'll be a sensitivity analysis. If not, something you want to look at. Um, I think it's it's good because remember going back to that exit cap rate. You know, I think I had it at five point seven five. Well, what if it isn't five point seven five? Maybe it turns out to be a six percent. What's my return? Um, what if it's a six and a half percent? So we can look at the equity multiple returns different um, on different whole periods. Sometimes they'll do sensitivity analysis on the IR or the cash flow, et cetera. So, um, but I always like to look at a sensitivity analysis just to see, okay, well, this is where they projected, but what if it's, what if rates are not interest or excuse me, the uh, rent increases, aren't what was projected or what if the exit cap rate is not where, you know, they're projecting? Are you still comfortable with the deal with it being higher or lower? So I'm going to pause there. There's a lot of information, but I think if you took out anything, it's going back to, does the story make sense? One, you've got to have trust with the sponsor. So a lot of that is relationships. You want to, feel or know the person? Can you text them or call them? And do they get back timely? You know, maybe they're on vacation and they've gotten out of office or whatever, but most of the time they should be responsive, right? It's the right thing to do. Do does their underwriting have the story that makes sense and backed by data? Does it have the property management buy-in? Does it have the um the conservative basis of uh, rental growth or expense growth and exit cap rate. And if all the story and the trust and the track record, et cetera, you feel comfortable, then, you know, invest. I, I think a lot of people get stuck on the sideline because they, they, they do want to have all this knowledge which is important. And you should have as much knowledge, but if you're two three years having this knowledge and not, Trying to invest in real estate, then you're always going to be on the sideline, right? So, um, hopefully, this type of discussion sort of went behind the scenes of how we underwrite. And again, we we underwrite tons of deals, and it they don't work, and we we just move on, right? But uh, those are things passive investors don't have to worry about um, in underwriting daily. So fun times. All right. Any uh, questions that I'm going to go back to to the view? All right. Any questions? If not, I'm going to stop recording um, because maybe people want to ask questions without the recording, but if you have a question, definitely ask. Wait, I had a quick question, if you don't mind. Yeah. Out of curiosity, when you're underwriting a deal, how does, so when you're looking at, you know, equipment, HVAC, roof, Um, electrical, how does, when you, when you get a property condition report and you look at the effective useful life of those, uh, that equipment, how does that tie into how you're thinking about CapEx, um, equity raised, um, you know, impacting returns? How are you, how are you approaching that? Yeah. So one, when I do a property condition report, it's usually with the contractors that I know and trust and who are likely gonna do the work when we get the property. As an example, Thursday, when I told you I was at the due diligence. You know, we had our HVAC company that had already done another project for us that at uh, the IV at the Galleria, we replaced all 101 HVAC units because they were all in horrible condition failing and my maintenance costs would have been extremely high without it. And I don't like the look of window units at any of our properties. So we went and budgeted 101 units and in the first six months we did that, plus a recoding of the roof because all the second floor roofs were leaking. Um, and you know, when you're turning around a property, you don't want re- leaky roofs and you need HVACs to work in Houston, Texas, right? So um, I would say when you're doing your due diligence, bring people, contractors, people that can help already with that cost estimate. You know, so that was Thursday. So today I reached out to my electrician, my plumber. We had a roofer um, and an HVAC. And I'm like, hey, guys, love, you know, where are the, where are the reports? Love to that. My phone, they already, and I was there. I already know what's wrong and what needs to be done and fixed. But I still want that paper um, and that report. A lot of times the insurance company will want that as well. So at, at some point, Aaron, you can over-renovate a property, you know, we can go in and be like, okay, well, we need to do all the units, or we need to we need renovate all the units, we need to, you know, maybe it needs a new re- recoding, etc. Um, the goal is to pu- push net operating income as high as possible. And you can do that through increasing revenues. It's not always like increasing rents. I mean, rents is one avenue. But if I can do those carports, and now have non-paying parking to now being a paying parking well that's additional income Um, if i do a a contract with say comcast where they are the preferred vendor and i get a percentage of all the revenues from them as additional income laundry income um you know the list goes on but if i can boost other income or i can reduce expenses like one property that we're looking at um you know, we have another property very, you know, nearby. So we're going to have shared uh, property management expenses. It benefits both properties because we're able to allocate. So hopefully that maybe answered your question, but I mean, you definitely want to bring in your team and your team isn't like, I don't know if you're an active investor or passive investor, but if you're an active investor, like your team building isn't when you get a deal under contract, it's go time when you get on a contract because things are it's all, everything's very time sensitive, and especially when you have hard money, you got money on the line. Because if the deal doesn't work out, you don't want to lose your earnest money. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, ultimately, it, it goes back to due it goes back to due diligence into underwriting. If the property needs one property, we passed on. I mean, it was at like sixty thousand a door in the gallery of submarket of Houston, but the issue was it had a had a lot of issues. One, it was a chiller property. And so I looked at like, Hey, what would it, what would it be? I mean, huge value add for the future of this property is remove the chiller and and install individual HVAC units. But to do that, it was like 1.2 million. I was like, okay, uh, that isn't going to work, right? <laughs> Cause the, the, the property is like a class C property and the return just wouldn't be there. So ultimately, Aaron, you just got to figure out like what, what's that sweet spot of taking care of the asset, which hopefully reduces expenses, like note, replacing all the HVAC units repl- reduce my HVAC maintenance costs so you just you're looking at it holistically and and ultimately if it's a lot of capital then maybe you're overpaying and that's where you go, you can look at negotiating price too thank you um question here um what's a typical hold time before exit and what's a typical payback break even time on on these deals um so we typically you know, I I like three to five. So I invest um, based on deal, because I'm investing personally too, right? And I'm we're partnering and we're collecting, we're, we're pulling money together on properties that we couldn't buy on our own. All right. So an example, you know, one of our properties, it's a three to five year hold period. It was a renovation. Um, and my hope was to do a three year hold on it. But in today's market, it probably is a four or five year hold. So I always say in any of our deals, there's always a range. So three to five year, and always be okay with the worst case scenario. So when you're investing in a deal, if it's a five year on the outside, like are you okay with your money being held up in five years? That's a question you just got to ask yourself. So three to five years. On deals that I'm doing this year, I'm doing more five to seven years because it just gets us a little bit more runway out. but There's a saying in real estate, everything is always for sale. And so in a year or two years from now, if we get an offer and it's off market and, you know, it's something that hits or exceeds our investor returns, then we have to strongly look at it. Um, So, but I would say typically five to seven years is probably pretty reasonable. You know, there's also a thing of like just hold real estate long term, and I'm also like having as a sponsor. I'm always thinking like how um, how do I own real estate longer? Because if I have an investor group that just wants cash flow, and maybe they don't really want that equity upside, because if they get that equity. Flux in year three. Well, then they have to find money to put that in, or maybe that puts them at a tax disadvantage because they have taxes on that. So I have investors who was like, "Hey, I just wanted a 10% cash flow or 8% cash flow." And so at that point, it's like, "Hey, we're we're cash flowing for 10 years." And you know, if someone puts in a million dollars and they're getting an 8% return, they're getting an eighty thousand dollar annual passive income that's on paper tax loss because of the K ones. And, you know, we can, that's a whole nother subject, but in essence, you know, there's some taxes in that. So ultimately everybody on this call and those listening in will have to determine what is your hold period and what is your, what is your, um, why on being in real estate investing for me? You know, I'm of the age where I like the equity upside. I, I'm i okay with higher risk on some deals and to have that higher return. Okay. So if not, then I would be put into more class A, um, not as much value add. And those are nothing wrong with that. Everyone's going to be different. But if, if you rather have that, then your returns are less because the risk is less, but maybe you're okay with 3 or 4%. Um, you know, crazy CDs are paying 5% plus right now. But um, so you just have to look at that and then find sponsors who sort of fit that, you know, what you're looking for. It's a really great question. Any other questions? Uh, let's see. Uh, can you do a 1031 as a passive investor? Um, yeah, you can. And I and I have on one of my deals, um, they put in 1.2 million. Um, so how that works is say the uh, overall uh, capital stack is 3 million and y'all bring in a 1031 investor brings in 1.5 million. Um, that 1.5 million is the entity that they bought other real estate on and they sold it. And instead, and then they took that entity and reinvested it into another real estate. They they never took the money to themselves. They kept it with a third party um, intermediary, intermediary, and they found an asset within a certain amount of time, and then they invested. So, say they invested that one point five million as an entity. Then, as my entity is an L, the LP entity that would have other my friends and family and colleagues and people on this call we brought in another million and a half and together we bought this property. But instead of one entity buying the property, it would be two entities buying that one property. So from a, um, it would be through a tick agreement, a tenant in common. So you would have 50%, 50%. And that tick agreement is what is on the title to own that property. So uh, typically on a 1031 for CREI partners, at a minimum, we want to see 1 million. Um, and it is it is a little on the higher side, but with the amount of um, legal fees and just the intricacies of it all, usually one million is where it makes sense. But for smaller properties or properties you want to do on your own, that 1031 you can definitely convert over to you know other other deals. And other sponsors will have different minimum requirements, but for ours it's about one million. Um, In that example, the passive investor must have 50% for them to be able to do 1031. No, um, good question. So um, that was just my example. If there was a 3 million raise and they just happen to have a million and a half um, on the deal, we did a 1031, the total raise was like 5.8 million and they brought in like 1.2. And so I don't, I'm not good at math, but they own like 20 or uh, all in all, there was like 20% of the total deal. So this lp entity was like 80 some percent and this was the remaining so it all depends um hopefully that makes sense um yeah so that you know and and you know you could do this uh and there's different tax about you know different financial tax people such but if you were to sell your single families and I don't know. If they're in your name and not in entity names, then you could sell the properties and take that money and 1031 it right. So if you had this upside, you can 10 you can combine 1031, but all that would have to be certain time frames. And then if you ever needed a 1031 company, um, I've got a couple that I've worked with. That's been pretty good, but there's plenty of groups out there that do it. all right um thank y'all for staying on for me this long normally it's not like this we we normally close right at the hour or close to it but um there was a lot of info so um yeah reach out to me you know my email is wayne at creipartners.com again our website's Um, we have a director of investor education um, who's on this call, Whitney Pierce. And then we also have a um, investor relations and brand, um, director of brand and investor relations, Courtney Bendero. You probably get her emails. If you don't, you'll, you'll start getting those emails every other week. We do newsletters. So um, let's stay in touch uh, for 506B offerings. If you're not an accredited investor, you know, reach out. Let's build a relationship. Doesn't mean you have to invest at all. Um, It just allows us to present an opportunity. So for accredited investors, you know, we don't have to have the relationship, but for non-accredited investors, you know, let's have that relationship because we don't do very many 506B deals and the 506B we do, it's really just to take care of that investor base who wants to grow their wealth through real estate. So, all right. Well, my voice is going out. So thank you all so much for being on. And uh, I had a quick question. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so the, I, I saw that you had a course that you're offering, so I'm a very, very like new beginner. Does that kind of go over like how everything works? Cause everything that I watched today, I, I'm not sure exactly about it. It's my first time seeing everything. Yeah. It's a really great question. So I went a lot more in the weeds than most people. Like, I don't know if there's other meetups that go into underwrite. I'm sure there are, but it, it's a lot of numbers that you probably will get a headache from. Um, and that wasn't really the purpose of that. it's just so you know what we do on the back end for underwriting. Uh, but to answer your question, yes uh, our passive investor coaching program it um breaks out it's like five hours worth of videos but it shortens and makes it all make sense from where like starting with your why because you you gotta everybody has a reason why they want to invest in real estate. And then that ties into your risk and reward, which ties into what type of asset classes you're going to invest in. And then it ties into like, how do you look at it and underwrite it? And maybe, you know, you won't be the person underwriting, but it goes into um, a lot more information and background of what we talked about today. Um, And look, my course is uh, a lot of time and effort was put into it. Um, It definitely fast tracks. But you can get a lot of this information from biggerpockets.com. You can get it from books. Um, You can get it from online and these webinars and meetups. Um, I just think if you're looking to invest, if you're going to invest $50,000 this year and you don't have the time to ramp up, then spend the $750 to take our course and then have access to us. That's, that's sort of my thing. Or if you have time, then there's a lot of free information and a lot of great meetups. So just depends on where you're at and what your timing is. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And then remember the fourth Monday of every month, other than December, we meet together. And there's a lot of our investors with CRI partners started just like where you are in this meetup and they built the relationship and the trust. And we we were all learning together and asking questions together. So um, you're in the right place. So um And again, we meet on the fourth Monday of every month. Okay, got it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. Well, y'all have a wonderful evening. Any other questions before I hit stop? Thank you, Ray. Good job. Thanks, Lorna. Thank y'all very much. Reach out if y'all need anything. Thank y'all. That's all for this episode. We hope you subscribe, share, and leave a review of the show. For more information about passively investing in multifamily apartments, check out Wayne's free ebook by going to CREIPartners.com forward slash ebook. Also, follow us on Facebook by searching CREI Partners. This was the untold stories of real estate investing.